I kid you not, my very second thought was, oh, I really hope I look like him. Um, more than once I have gotten ready for a Sunday, ready to change the world, only to be told, not like that, you're not. So I, I tried to stick with basics, and uh, but then I had a moment of panic and sent her a text message. I was like, did this work? Trying to take a selfie in a mirror, harder than it looks. And um, she still hasn't written back, so <laughs> try not to be distracted. Uh, a couple other announcements. Um, just a reminder about Timberlake scholarships or uh, sponsorships. We're wanting to be able to, you know, to uh, make sure every kid has a chance to go to camp this summer who wants to. Um, also, Russ and Julie Smith, you know, Russ is undergoing chemo for the next several weeks. It's kind of an interesting schedule. He has chemo for a week and then two weeks off and then chemo for a week and then two weeks off. And so um, there is a uh, kind of under takethemameal.com. There is some information if, if you're interested in doing that. Um, also, uh, a couple of people ha- have talked to me. They have extra David Jeremiah uh, tickets. David Jeremiah is coming through on April 21 in Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, so we have a, a couple tickets. Call us if you uh, would be interested in that, and we'll see. And um, also, just uh, to let you know, next week, Jordan Grantham uh, from the Christian Resource Center is going to be here with us and sharing. Jordan and I have been in contact for um, really kind of several months, just kind of when it would be a good time for him to come and share and share a little bit about their ministry there and just to um, bring the message, share a, share a word from the Lord. Um, I think there's fantastic value in being able to bring in other godly men and women to, to share from Scripture and, and to teach and preach because um, they will inevitably uh, probably share in an area of my weakness. And so uh, to kind of supplement my weakness with their strength I think is just incredibly rich and beneficial for, for us as a church. I'll still be here. I just I just get to sit and listen. So um, looking forward to that. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we glorify you. We worship you. We praise you. God, you are beautiful. You are gracious. You are so holy. God, we give you our life. We give you our all. Lord, we just say you can you can have us, lead us, be with us as you will. God, we want our lives to be completely used up. This is a day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's stand and we proclaim these truths today and worship the Lord. I'm casting my cares aside. I'm leaving my past behind. I'm setting my heart and mind on you, Jesus. I'm reaching my hands to yours, believing there's so much more, knowing that all you have in store for me is good. It's so good. Day is the day that you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day that you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And I won't worry about 
Shout your praise, our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Let's just praise him this morning. All the earth will shout your praise, our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. Lord, we give you praise. We need you desperately. We give you praise, Lord. Great God, our Father, every blessing to my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Grace of mountain, fixed upon him, mount of thy redeeming Lost in utter darkness till you came and 
washed clean. You gave us a new path to follow. And I praise you. Thank you for life. Amen. You may be seated. As we get ready for a time of prayer, um, just a reminder, uh, be praying for the farmers. They're in some uh, planting season, so um, long days, heavy machines, praying for them this next month, healing, um, and they would also come down and pray. To start off our prayer time, though, can we pull up the slide that on that last one, uh, how great a debtor, uh, it's, it's the first one that I showed you guys. And let's just, just meditate and pray on that for a few
sing this next song. I find comfort in knowing that God's not finished with me yet. He's not finished with us. This is my desire that he is my everything, that he is my air I breathe, that for us as a congregation, he's our daily bread. I'm very far from that sometimes, so I'm glad that he's not done and that he draws us to himself. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. Your holy presence living in me. This is my daily bread. This is the end. 
Past week uh, in my reading was reading through the story of the twelve spies, and uh, and there's some great stuff in there that kind of feel compelled to share with you. This is this is not part of a new series or or uh, a part of an, an old series, but uh, really just kind of felt uh, uh, Lord's leading that I needed to to go over this with you. And uh, we'll go through it. We'll we'll kind of talk through it, how it applies uh, in your own life. I'll just kind of let you guys decide that. Oh, that was. Um, most of you are, are pretty familiar with the story of the 12 spies. I think we even have great little kitty songs that sing about like 10 good spies and two bad or no, the other way, uh, 10 and I'm a little tired. Um, at 8 p.m. yesterday, I, I was still south of Enid, Oklahoma, so you can do the math. Uh, so I might need a little bit of grace in what I say. So we have two good spies and 10 bad spies um, is how the song goes. Uh, let me give you kind of a, an overview of what we're going to be going over today. So uh, Israel has come out of slavery in Egypt. They've seen some amazing things. They they saw God work the plagues in Egypt, which helped facilitate their release. Um, They crossed the Red Sea, which is this very dramatic miracle. They walked across the desert. Um, By day, they're being uh, led by a pillar of cloud. By night, they're being led by a pillar of fire. They come up to the promised land. This is the place where God wants to... Uh, uh, to give them and, 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 and to get ready to go in. So they send in 12 spies to check it out. Very strategic, very wise. I would have written down the same thing. The 12 spies go in. They scout it out for 40 days. They come back and they say, yep, it's great. It's fantastic. It's awesome. However, there's a whole lot of really strong people that I don't think we're going to be able to, to defeat. Um, there's kind of this lynch mob scene that gets a little bit of wild and crazy. And, uh, and God says, forget it, um, you're not going in now. And then God says, you have to go wander the desert for 40 years, and I'm going to give it to your children, and you don't get it. So that's what we're going to cover today. Uh, numbers, the book of Numbers, starting in 13. Um, as we work through this, though, here's the key concept that I want you to be watching for, all right? Th- this is the key idea. And that is that, 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 that these spies and the Israelites and, and, and even the, um, the leaders, they understood the physical realities with absolute clarity. But because they failed to view it from God's perspective, because they, and because they only viewed it from man's perspective, an entire generation of people perished in the desert. God gave the path to the next generation that followed. So as we go through this, watch how these different um, characters in this story, how they view it from either God's perspective or man's perspective. Um, Numbers 13, verses 1 to 16. I'm not going to read that, um, but that's simply the list of men who were sent in. Um, All were in leadership role of some kind, some uh, have speculated that these were military leaders. Uh, we don't really know, but that's just who all was sent in. Starting in verse 17, let me read uh, verse 17 to 20. Um, when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and into, on into the hill country and see what the land is like and whether the, the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many, what kind of land do they live in. 
Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are the trees on? Are there um, trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the food of the land. Um, very strategic, very specific. Uh, they're supposed to report on the land. What, what's the terrain? Plains, forests, swamps. Um, what, what are the people like? What, what's kind of their, their military strength? Uh, how many of them are there? Is the soil, I mean, is this good for crops and, and, and trees and growing things? Um, the cities, I mean, are these just clusters of tents or, or are they fortified with walls and, and gates and, and, and guard towers and the vegetation? Um, you know, if it's forested, you can sneak up with a large group of people. Uh, if it's prairies, you can't. Um, you know, at Philmont, we worked a lot with topographical maps. Um, there's a whole color coding on system on, on topo maps um, where the there's kind of like a light green, which is vegetation three feet and under. The next is kind of a mid green, three to six feet, and dark green is six feet and over. Why those designations? Because when vegetation's over six feet, you can hide soldiers in it. Right? So, so all this is very wise, very um, strategic on, on, on how they do this thing and, and figuring out their, their, uh, their strategy. The fruit was a clever move, um, right? I mean, later on we see them bringing this massive cluster of grapes. They bring it carrying in on, on like a pole. Two men have to carry it. It's initially encouraging. I mean, it amazes them, the, the fruit of the land. And it's a visual example of what awaits for them. There's symbolic meaning. Plus, they've just been in the desert for however long, and they probably haven't, you know, seen fresh fruit in a really long time. It was interesting to learn that today, even today, the Ministry of Tourism in Israel, their logo or their symbol is two men carrying a cluster of grapes for two men. Because Israel is the promised land and a great place to go and visit. And even though Scripture doesn't tell us which two men carried in the cluster of grapes, the Ministry of Tourism will tell you that it's Joshua and Caleb, the heroes of the story. <laughs> but, anyway. So they spy out the land. Verse 21, down to verse 24. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as uh, Rehob towards Labo and Hamath. They went up through Negev and came to Hebron where uh, uh, Ahimon and Talmai and the descendant of Anak lived. Uh, Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Uh, when they reached the valley of Eshcol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshcol because of the cluster of grapes and the Israelites cut off there. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. Minimum 350 miles, probably closer to 500 miles. That's a point-by-point point journey that does not include, like, lateral exploration. So these guys were covering at least 10 miles a day for 40 days solid. My first thought was, they're really fit. <laughs> I did a 5K yesterday. It wiped me out. Um, they were doing, they, they covered a lot of land. Uh, they took this responsibility well. Um, they explored it thoroughly. Then we get to the report. Verse uh, 25 down to um, 29. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. Now they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. 
we went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Symbolic of this being a really uh, agriculturally rich, wealthy land. Here's its fruit. Big question of verse. But the people who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified, very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, and the Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. So they bring back reports, and it's completely honest. We have no reason to believe whatsoever that they lied in this report. Um, Caleb and, and Joshua never challenge it. It's a good, it's an honest report. Uh, and things honestly don't look good, right? People, are they weak or strong? They're very strong. Giants, actually, some of them. Cities, are these clusters of tents or are they fortified? They're fortified cities and they're very large. People, are there a lot or are there a few? There's a lot. Strategically speaking, this was worst case scenario, right? Best case scenario is just a few people, really scattered, kind of defenseless. Instead, we have a lot of people clustered in large groups inside fortified cities and they're really great warriors, okay? Kind of worst case, worst case, worst case scenario. Uh, the people who live there, they, they mention, mentioned the descendants of Anak. Um, this was a race of giants. Um, it's possible but unconfirmed that Goliath was part of this race. Uh, they were certainly big enough to terrorize the, the spies. And it's also said that they were uh, descendants of the Nephilim, who also were called a race of giants and renowned warriors. The Amalekites, these were raiding nomads who lived in the desert. Um, at one point, I don't know if this had already happened or if it was uh, upcoming, um, but what would happen was that when Israel was walking through the desert, when there were stragglers that couldn't keep up, the Amalekites would come in, raid, kill, take their stuff, that kind of thing, right? Kind of like Discovery Channel or Zebras and Lions almost, only much worse. Um, lots of, of history. They're, they're kind of notable enemies of Israel, um, and, it's, and their family relatives, right? You have Jacob and Esau. Brotherly feud, Israelites descended from Jacob. So Esau has a son named Eliphaz, Eliphaz and his concubine have a son named Amalek, and that's where we get the Amalekites. So, kind of familiar. Even your family could come from there. You know, there's war dogs. Um, and all throughout history, there's, there's this going between these people groups. The Hittites, uh, they don't have that family feud going on, but they're just a sizable group of people um, who often fought against Israel. The Jebusites. Uh, kind of the same thing. They later controlled what was known as, or what is known as East Jerusalem today, and uh, David conquered that. But they were the ones who taunted David. They said, "Sure, you can attack if you like, but the lame and the blind will be able to fend you off." Uh, East Jerusalem has uh, steep valleys on three sides, but they're they're weak. Uh, Amorites, um, uh, also part of the, this group of Canaanites. Canaanites were actually descendants of Noah. Um, so these were. So basically, the entire place is populated with a whole bunch of powerful people groups who really hate Israel. And not just like one people group, but like a whole clustering of them, all in one place. So things look bad. Caleb speaks, verse 30. So Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, Let us go up at once, occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Okay, now, now the ten spies have already hinted at how they feel. They, they've not stated it outright, but they've kind of hinted it. Caleb speaks first, he, he, and we're going to develop this idea more later, later but, but Caleb knew that they could take the land, 
because of God, right? The Lord was with him. Physically, things got not looking good, but with God, all things are possible. Then the tenth sheep, verse 31. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against their people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel, earlier they brought to Moses, they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw in it are of great height. And we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we, and so we seemed to them. So the ten reassert th- their position that this is a bad idea. Now maybe I'm speculating a little bit. I think this probably caught Moses by surprise. I don't think he was ex- expecting this to go that way. Because had he known that they would have gone in this direction with this, I think he would have picked different men. Um, I mean, they're respected leaders in the community, possibly from military rank. Uh, they would have been older, wiser, experienced, respected. Uh, but they took Moses by surprise in this, I believe. Verse 14. Then all the congregation ra- raised a loud voice. Oh, let me back up. Here, here's the other thing. They, they brought that report to the people of Israel. I think that, that what it's telling us is that they were actually working through the crowds giving them their report. That they were actively almost like um, uh, spreading gospel. Like th- this was not we brought it to Moses and we're done. I think that they actively worked throughout the people group saying bad idea, bad idea, here's why, bad idea. And, and, th- and that concept and, and, and kind of that, uh, not really gossip, but kind of that, that along those lines found incredibly fertile ground in the hearts of the Israelites. So then verse 14, then all the congregation raised a loud voice, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They said to them, oh, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we would have died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You know, at first my thought was, man, these people are advocating for slavery. They're saying slavery is better than this. And they haven't even entered the land yet. And my first thought was just how, how quickly we forget how bad things were. And in some regards, that's true, Right? Uh, one of kind of the interesting things that, that we would see with Trek teens, um, not always, but sometimes. So, you know, you have, you have you know, young adults from North America, and they, they go to a foreign country, and, and after a while it starts to get hard, and they're, they're trying to learn the language, and after a while they're not really, you know, so things are starting to get tough, and they start, and you hear it in kind of their speech, they start to idolize back home. Oh, back home things are so great, so perfect. I could eat cheeseburgers, and everyone loves me. Home was so fantastic. Why can't I go home? And then what would happen is that they would come home and they would realize that that they had kind of built up the memory a little bit incorrectly. They're like, oh yeah, not everyone likes me anymore. I can't eat that many cheeseburgers. And what, you know, and they started to get frustrated with home. And then what would they do? They would say, oh man, things are so fantastic overseas. <laughs> if only I could go back to there. Oh, that was so wonderful, so perfect. You know. 
So there is a little bit of just kind of people forgetting it. But here's the other thing that, that I kind of think is going on. And, and that is, I mean, it, at, kind of the same mentality. You know, why, why is it that a spouse will return to an abusive environment? Why, why do some people just, they, they, it's like they almost prefer, quote unquote, this hostile or, or this like acidic within family units, the family unit, you'll see an equilibrium. Even if it's dysfunctional, they treat them, they, they, they establish an equilibrium where everyone just knows how to interact. And then when one person changes within that, the rest of the group will resist it, even if it's a good change, because at least they found out a way to interact with one another. I think the Israelites just knew how to be slaves. For 400 years, they knew how to be slaves. And even though it was an awful 400 years, that's just what they knew how to do really well. And so they were actually saying, you know what? We know it's bad, but we know how to be slaves, and this change or transition is just really rough for us. And so we would rather go back to that than brave this. slavery over freedom and victory in the promised land. Moving on, uh, verse 5, I'm in chapter 14 now. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. Joshua the son of Nun, Caleb the son of uh, Jephunneh, uh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, the land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred to us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Several things going on here. First off, this is full-on lynch mob. In a couple verses, the people want to stone Moses and Aaron. I mean, th this is full-on lynch mob. And as one who has watched Westerns, I know that the best way to deal with a lynch mob is that you pull out your six-shooter and you threaten to kill the ringleader. And then it all goes away. Instead, Moses and Aaron fall to the ground and pray. Caleb and Joseph start ripping off their clothes. It's an odd strategy. Actually, this mob doesn't dissolve. It doesn't go away until God shows up and Pharaoh's class. <laughs> it's better than the, the six shooter thing. I've kind of wondered what their first prayers were about, Moses and Aaron. Like, like, was it just like, Lord, we need help, please? Or was it, God, don't kill them all right away? Um, I don't know. I, I've wondered what those first prayers. I can tell you what my first prayers would have been. Probably not my priorities. But again, we see the insight of Joshua and Caleb. They say, if the Lord delights in us, we can take the land. They say, do not fear the people. Their protection is gone. Fascinating statement. They are bred for us. We consume them. They are nothing to us. Because God was on their side, no protection, whether earthly or spiritual, could withstand them. And again, right, this is the core concept we're looking at. Seeing the reality from God's perspective. 
completely different because they understood from God's perspective. Verse 10, God starts to speak. All the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. The people are about ready to stone Moses, Aaron, Caleb, Joshua. The glory of the Lord appears. He intervenes. And, and, And God speaks to Moses. And God offers to wipe them out and to turn Moses into a greater nation than, than, than what already exists. I find this fascinating. So many questions are, are, are stirred up in, in my mind as a result of that. I just thought, that's he Moses, or this is a serious offer? I don't know. But we mo- Moses is a remarkable man, because not only does he turn down the offer, but he proceeds to intervene and pray for the nation of Israel. And the reason that he proceeds to do that is because it is the thing that most glorifies God. Moses had one, I mean, if this was a job offer, like this was an amazing, you know, job offer that that was before him. But Moses turns it down and says, please, Lord, can I stick with this stone? This will bring me to my section, God pronounces judgment. Uh, I'm just going to kind of skip through uh, the tender parts here. Let's just kind of go through. The Lord says, I have pardoned according to your word, as truly as I live on earth, um, uh, according to the glory of the Lord. And none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt, um, uh, which tested me these ten times, have not observed my voice. None of them shall see the land. Uh, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me, I will bring him to the land. All your number listed in the census from 20 years older and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land except Caleb and Joshua. Your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in and they shall know the land. And according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bury your iniquity 40 years. So a couple things. One, the children that they were so worried about. God says they're going to be the ones to enter the land, take the land. They are going to do what the Israelites were supposed to do. So God took that honor, and he gave it to the next generation. Uh, Forty years is because of 40 days. Um, And Caleb and Joshua get to enter the land. And I think actually they're the only two out of everyone. I think Aaron dies, and Moses doesn't go in. Forty years later, you know, we see Caleb just as vigorous and gung-ho as ever. Fascinating story about Caleb 40 years later. Still going strong. What happens next I find very difficult. The ten men who not only failed to see it from God's perspective, but, but actually who went around Israel giving a bad report, God kills them by plague. Verse 36, And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who he turned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who were sent to spy out the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, Caleb, son of uh, Jephunneh, remained alive. So these ten spies 
who did exactly what Moses asked them to do, spied out the land, no problems there. They brought back fruit from the land, no problems there. They returned, they gave a truthful presentation of what they saw, no problems there. But then they proceeded to say, it is impossible for us to do it. We should not do it. And they took that idea and they pushed the card throughout Israel. And so these ten men, by their lack of vision and, and really looking at this from God's perspective, contributed to the demise of an entire people group. An entire generation of Israelites died in the desert because, you know, these men worked their influence and, and, the, and the people ran with it and they listened to them. Now, like I said, I, I think their hearts were fertile ground for what they were saying. But because these ten men were leadership and they led in the wrong direction, their punishment was extra harsh. They didn't lie about what they saw. I mean, the facts were clear. But their faith in God and that God would keep his word was weak. They stirred up dissension uh, and a lack of faith. I mean, they, they had the command and the promise of God, and they had the obstacle, but they became so overwhelmed by the obstacle that God killed them for it. And that says that this is important to God. Old Testament, you know, every so often you God kills people, you know, and some people find that uncomfortable. But what that tells me simply is that whatever it was that just happened, that's a really big deal for, for God. People were brutally punished because they were intimidated by an obstacle. They let fear and misguiding of reality override the command they were given. And consistent throughout Scripture, we, I mean, we see this, that people in places of authority are held to a higher standard. Um, as your pastor, I, I have to stand, someday I will have to stand and give an account to God for you guys. Please make my life easy, all right? But Scripture says I have to stand and give an account for you all. I believe husbands and fathers, uh, that you will have to give an extra account for how you led your family. And that, I mean, that's one of the reasons I think it's so important that we as a church work hard to turn the hearts of, 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 of men towards Jesus. Because statistically we see that when the husband and the father follow Jesus, much more higher likelihood that the entire family will follow Jesus. Somewhere in our operation, that has to be a priority. But for me as your pastor, for those who give leadership to you, for your leadership team, for your team leaders, if we bring you to the edge of the promised land, whatever that may be, and I'm not sure yet, but if we bring you to the edge of the promised land and we fail to lead you into that, then before God we have committed a very grievous sin. Even if we have all the facts correct, even if from an earthly perspective it is impossible, if we fail to see it from God's perspective, and if we fail to lead you into that, then we really are operating in the same way as the 12 spies. Last section, Israel feels bad about their sin. Um, I, I won't read it, I'll, I'll just kind of let you know what happens. But Israel feels bad about their sin. They, they try to go into the land without God's help, uh, and they lose miserably. Um, after the ten spies died in the plague, Moses shared what God had said. The people mourn. They say, we're sorry, we'll do it, we'll attack. Moses says, 
don't even bother. God's not with you. It won't work. And it doesn't work. They're defeated horribly. And they spend the next 40 years wandering the earth. Ironically, the very thing happened to Israel that the ten bad spies said would happen. Okay? They predicted things in the natural correctly. There's that missing ingredient. God is the missing ingredient in that. They saw it from the from the earthly perspective. The ten spies did. They saw it from the earthly perspective. And then when Israel tried to go in without God's help, like they nailed it. They predicted exactly what would happen, and that's what happened. Main theme, seeing things from God's perspective, not man's perspective. Having God's vision for something. And the consequences for failure to do so are harsh, and they are especially harsh for leadership. For the ten, for the Israelites, God is that missing ingredient. Um, But for Caleb and Joshua, right? Understanding things from God's perspective. Uh, Caleb and Joshua, they call the people defenseless. You actually kind of see this, a similar thing play out in, in, in when David battles Goliath. Like in the, in the earthly Goliath was was the winner in every single way possible, but David understood from God's perspective, and so David knew that actually it would be an unfair fight with all the odds against Goliath, because David had God on his side. And folks, the the Old Testament is full of stories uh, of people making decisions that, that at the time seemed practical or even inconsequential, and yet their decisions change history. We've got to learn to view the world two-dimensionally. You have to see the physical, but you also have to understand in the spiritual what is going on as well, too. Because only when you see the world two-dimensionally will you really understand what's going on and will you really have clarity on how to move forward. You've got to see the world two-dimensionally. It's easy to talk big, right? And to talk about the ten spies and be like, oh, I mean, I, I would never be that. I would never do that. Like, I would, come on. I would never be, I'd always be one of the two spies who would give in. I'd never be that person. Really? Not much at all, really. One of the things that I've learned about myself, I, um, kind of through personality tests and assessment and things, and just good people in my life. I'm very good at taking something that's complex, whether uh, abstract or even relational, figuring it out, what it means, and then explaining it in a way that people understand. But in understanding kind of those those complex things, I'm also pretty good at telling you where the pitfalls are in the long run. My mind just naturally goes to what are we going to do in a year, two years, three years. And so relatively quickly, I can tell you whether an idea will succeed or, or work, and, and, and kind of where your, your potential pitfalls are in that. What I've also learned is that if I'm not very careful, when I sit in a meeting, I can easily perceive, be perceived as the negative voice in the room. I can actually be the negative voice in the room because when someone brings up an idea, I mean, that person had it. I'm like, well, here are the problems that you're going to encounter. You know, that's what I'm going to do. Meaning, that if I had gone on that scouting trip with the Celts, spied out the land, 
Had I not asked God what to do, I would have analyzed the situation. I would have told you where the potential pitfalls were in the future. I would have told you why this won't work. And I, I would have sided with the ten, all in an effort to be very helpful. When the mission agreement is God, we see the world rightly. When the mission ingredient is God, we see the world rightly. Having the facts straight, being able to predict what would happen in the natural, that does not make you right, and it does not make you a good leader. What is God asking of you? That is really the only question that, that is before us. Whatever God is asking of you, whatever God is wanting you to do, then that's what you do. And, and there's discerning that is a huge question. There's a, probably a couple sermons in that as well, too. How, how do you discern God's voice? I mean, that's a big one. But, but, but knowing that is, is critical. As your, as, as your pastor, this story terrifies me. Because I don't want to get to heaven only to find out that we as a church stood on the end of, of some kind of promised land only to get intimidated by the facts and, and, then, and then punt the ball and it gets handed off to the next generation because we didn't do it. Pray for me. Pray for your leadership. I believe that God has a course of action he'd like us to pursue. I don't know what that is yet. We're working, we're praying, trying to figure out what that is. But we must know from God what it is. Because in all likelihood, it will look impossible. And it will be impractical. And in the natural, it will be a bad idea. Um, we have to understand it from God's perspective. And with God, it is absolutely doable. And examine your own life. I mean, what is God calling you to? ironically, whether or not it appears doable is actually irrelevant. If God is in it, it can happen, it will happen. And, and so if you're feeling a bit of a pressure or a conviction or, or stirring, that, that's God, not me. As I wrote this, like I don't have, like I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I don't have any of your life stories in mind as I'm going through this. I don't have some sneaky long-range game plan that I'm working towards, all right? I'm sharing this story, this, this sermon, because I felt compelled to do so. How it applies to you guys personally, that's between you and God. So if you're feeling singled out, that's the Holy Spirit, that's not me. I tried to keep going with the eye contact and not throwing you down. Moses, Caleb, Joshua, Aaron, they saw the world differently. They saw it from God's perspective. And honestly, in the end, they were proved correct. Took like four years correct. Do not punt the ball and force God to give your promised land to another generation. Amen. Heavenly Father, this story is intimidating and scary and difficult, um, but God, I pray that you would be speaking to us, uh, both individually, but also as a church. And um, God, we don't want to get to heaven only to find out that we were on the edge of some kind of promised land and we correctly evaluated everything in the physical and then walked away because we never stopped to ask your plan. God, what is it that you would want of us in our own lives, in our families, maybe work or business? 
maybe in a relationship or in ministry, certainly for us as a church. God, we, we want to know what it is that, that you want us from our gifts. What, what is the important thing that's going to stand for us, Lord? Because we want to be found faithful in all that you entrusted to our care. God, I pray that for all, all of us here, both individually and, and collectively, that one day when we appear before you, we would be graced to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You did all that I entrusted into your care. God, it is a delight for us to serve you, follow you, love you, worship you, sing your name. May we see the world through you from that day. May we see our lives and the world around us change for the better. Amen. Please stand with us as we respond. With this heart open wide from the depths, from the heights, I will bring a sacrifice. With these hands lifted high, hear my song, hear my cry, I will bring a sacrifice. I will bring a sacrifice. I lay me down, I'm not my own. I belong to you alone. Lay me down, lay me down. Oh, and on my heart this much is true. There's no life apart from you. Lay me down, lay me down. Yeah, yeah. Letting go of my pride, giving up all my rights. Take this life and let shine 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 take it this life and let it shine i lay me down i'm not my own i belong to you alone lay me down lay me down
Lord, we just want to surrender our rights to you, knowing that we can trust you to lead us the right way. God, give us ears to hear your voice and to follow you to whatever that promised land may be. And uh, give us the desire to just lay ourselves down before you. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. It's true.